0: Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, by guitarists for guitarists. And now your
1: hosts, John Brown and Al Levy.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and Al to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends. And we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B R O W N E M O N U M E N T S. And you can find AL at AL Levy U R M Audio. That's E Y A L L E V I U R M A U D I O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast, so please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today, Chris Rawson, is a guitar player, songwriter, and producer who is well-known for his work in monumental bands such as Walls of Jericho and Stick to Your Guns. With over 10 album releases combined between the two bands, Chris has nearly 20 years of live playing and touring experience coupled with a wealth of knowledge in the studio. Stick to Your Guns released their seventh studio album at the end of July 2022 entitled Spectre to wide critical acclaim. Let's do it. Chris Rawson, welcome to the Riff Hard
0: Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked. It's nice to meet you. Likewise. And John. John I've known for yeah. over 10 years probably, but I haven't seen him in a, over a decade.
2: Yeah, the last time was Heavy Festival in the UK when that was a thing which it isn't anymore
0: (laughs) yeah
1: that's so long ago (laughs)
2: yeah so long that was 2012 i think so yeah it's been since 2012 so 10 years
0: yeah
1: insane what's insane is how quickly uh that shit goes by like 2012
0: doesn't feel like that long ago no to me it feels like last week and now i I like wake up and i'm like oh i'm in my 40s now this is crazy (laughs) yeah how did that happen well i know how i didn't die (laughs) basically
1: that's that's the long and short of it is i just stayed alive and then age happened so it's actually a good thing but sometimes i'm like how do i look like the way i thought that uh 40 somethings looked as a kid
0: i think that all the time or i bump into people i went to high school with and i'm like this dude looks 40 and and then i'm always wondering (laughs) and then i'm always wondering like do i look 40 or (laughs) Or doing what I do, does that keep me young? I don't know. So, well, when you see college students, do they look
1: like little kids to you?
0: Yeah, they look like children. Yeah,
1: same. I think that's like a good gauge is what do young 20 somethings look like? Now I see like police officers or like professional athletes and they look like kids. I'm like, What does that
0: say for me if i get someone at the border and they're being a dick to me but they're like a kid (laughs) i'm always just like you motherfucker like (laughs) like i always want to like dad them all the time and i'm like oh they can arrest me it's really really weird
1: that probably is a good gauge of what we actually look like (laughs) (laughs) for sure i feel like it's impossible to actually like know Kind of like it's impossible to know if your music's any good.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know you, what I mean? Like, you just don't know. Like, you just can't. Yeah, I think it's impossible to know. You just write what you hope you like, and you're like, I like this, I think. And then hope everyone else likes it. Yeah.
1: Have you been shocked ever, like good or bad, like really loved something and then everyone was like eh, or just a song on an album that no one gave a shit and then also the opposite
0: yeah i've i've had the i've i've had the whole spectrum of emotions where it's like i'm shocked that somebody likes something and then i'm also shocked that people didn't like something I, what are you talking about this is like the best thing i've ever done <laughs> and like people are just like nah that's not it yeah is
1: that something that you just kind of like accept at this point. Now that, I mean, you've been at it for a while. So I feel like when I was younger, I cared more if people didn't appreciate the stuff that I thought was the best. Then as I got older, just didn't give a shit.
0: Yeah. I feel like you just kind of have to not give a shit about it or else I still find myself chasing past successes, I guess all the time, but in a way where I know I can't recreate it. Like a lot of it's like a time and place thing. Yeah, or a moment in time where you put out the right record at the right time with the right kind of kids that are going to shows, you know, where you may never get that perfect storm again. I just try to do what I think is sonically cool to me.
2: It's also like impossible to please every single person on this planet.
0: Yeah. Cause if you put out the same record, someone's going to be pissed that it's the same. And if you change too much, then everyone's pissed that you changed.
1: Yep.
2: There's no win, (laughs) (laughs) only failure.
1: (laughs) That whole moment in time stuff actually like, uh, When people talk about the luck factor, I actually think that's actually what the luck factor is because that's the one thing you have zero control over is whether or not it's the right time and place for something. You can't predict that and you can't control it. So if you happen to release something where it just is exactly what the public wanted and needed, they just didn't know yet, basically you showed them that this is what they wanted and needed, with your song that that's the luck factor i think or that you met the right people
0: yeah i also find that if you hit that the younger you hit that at i feel like it messes with your ego in a way where you think that you think like you have control like you have your thumb on the pulse you know you Mm -hmm. think like oh i could recreate this whenever i want (laughs) and then like two records after that you're just like oh no, like I don't have control over this at all. How
1: old were you when you first uh, had that happen?
0: The first time I felt like, oh, people care about a band I'm in was probably like 2002, maybe, where I was just like, oh, this could be like a thing with my other band, Walls of Jericho. And I was just like, oh, this is great. And then a couple records after that, it was like, that created all the momentum to get us in all the right places to do stuff like Ozfest or what to do bigger stuff. So you think it's like, oh, we're just going to follow the path of breed, And you just keep doing what you do. And then next thing you know, you're whatever, you know. And then after a while, you realize you can't control the public perception of like how they're going to receive your music, you know. And then with Stick Your Guns, I feel like I got lucky again in 2012 where we put out a record and it was the right time with the right it just came out and all of a sudden everyone loved it like in like our scene, you know? So it just felt like, to me it felt like winning the lottery twice at that point. Cause I understood it was like a lottery. The first time I was like, probably like fluffed my ego and was like, Oh, I can do this. This is sick. And the second time I was like, Oh man, I won the lottery twice. That makes sense. I mean, the thing about it is
1: the more times you play, the more, obviously the more chances of winning it you have, but it's still Crapshoot,
0: yeah, for sure. I mean, there are some bands though that you just watch them go and they just go and go and go, and you're like, damn, (laughs) they just got it.
1: Well, it's like some investors too, you know, that just somehow have managed to pick all the right shit for like 50 years. They got a DeLorean, it definitely seems like it. Just out of curiosity, the two times that that happened for you when you were on the creation side of it,
0: did you have any clue? I would say no. I feel like while we were doing it both times it felt like something was happening, you know? I felt like I could feel like, oh, we put together a good batch of songs, you know? But I don't think I, like, knew it was about to pop off. It was still like, put it out, wait, and see how people were going to react.
2: Did you um pick up on any moments in the creation of the the album in 2002 and obviously the album in 2012? Was there any moments where you saw anything that you could gauge that you'd done on both occasions
0: i mean it's mostly just live response i feel like with stick to your guns in 2012 that's when we put out our record diamond and we had just toured our asses off on the record before that was hope division which that was the first record with the lineup that is still stick to your guns basically i feel like it just took that one record to like figure out exactly what we were going to do and then figure out what of that worked live. And then spent all of the writing of Diamond going like, what works live? How can we opt make this like the most optimal for a live show? Okay, that makes sense. Smart. That's all that we were doing. And then when it came out, it was just like, oh, we could play the entire record now and people will sing along to almost every song. So we I and in that case, I felt like we got lucky, but also at the same time, it was like we put in the work of going like, oh, these type of choruses work, these type of breakdowns work. They, like, it was almost like research without, like, we weren't set out doing research, but you know what I mean? Like, just learning from watching how people were already responding from the two years previous. So you definitely stacked the deck as much as you could in your favor. Yeah, I mean, I still try to do that with every record, I feel like. I'm always just like, what works live? This song works. So we need, like, the 2.0 version of this, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Do you find that over the years it's easier to do that, or do you find that the public or the, the audience, they want something different. So then they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So you have to keep on evolving your understanding of what works live.
0: I keep trying to evolve, but at the same time, it's like, I also don't want to alienate people. So it's like, you. I feel like you have to like sort of stay true to your brand, but you also have to stay relevant. So I, for me, my struggle more than anything is relevance at this point being like 43 and trying to play the type of music we play where I feel like it's mostly a young person's game. At some point, there's gonna be a kid who's not who's gonna look up at me on stage and go like, this guy looks more like my uncle versus like, I can be that kid on stage, you know? Yeah, but it's weird, man, with heavy music. I know what you're saying,
1: but then I think about bands like Slayer or something where at the tail end of their career, they had just as many kids there as they did people their own age and everything in between. And I think this is true in most ends of the heavy music spectrum. There's something about heavy music that makes it less susceptible to age than maybe some more mainstream genres. It seems like with heavy music, as long as you keep making good music and as long as the band is quality, the public is cool with it. To a degree. Uh, Like, they don't expect you to be 22 forever, whereas in some genres of music, they do.
2: The fans might change, though, if you do change too much, but that's not necessarily a terrible thing. I mean, when I think of bands that have changed their sound and it's kind of worked well for them, Thrice always comes to my mind. You know, if you go from the first records they put out, it's very, very punky. Hardcore punk almost. Through to now, they're almost like a post-rock band. But it still sounds like Thrice yeah totally in the tonalities that they use like you can hear the tonalities in the first record to the last record and they you know you can tell it's thrice but yeah i mean trying to get uh 22 year old kids to like your music until they're in their 40s what's definitely <laughs> happen with bands like hate breed you know like yeah. they still get kids of all ages to their shows as well In fact, i saw them probably a couple of years ago now and it was packed
0: mixture of ages there's always going to be like legacy type bands that like pop big enough that it's just like oh they're just around for as long as they choose to be at this point but then I feel like where like a stick to your guns lands is we're more of like constantly trying to be in the mix of what's happening you know versus I, I feel like we've never gotten big enough where it's just like oh they're just a big band and they're just around I mean maybe we are I don't know my, per, my perception is always just trying to maintain relevant though
1: you know the thing about that is I know, as everybody on this call does, like I know people in some enormous bands and they don't think their band's that big or they feel like it could all just fall apart at any moment. Or <laughs> yeah, like, totally. Like it's all a ha- house of cards, basically. Not like being too comfortable with the size of something is pretty natural and not necessarily linked to reality i'm not saying you're delusional or anything you're saying it's not it's not always like one-to-one as musicians and artists were wired to feel a little bit more uncertain about how things are
0: yeah for sure for me i just always try to be like grateful like if it all ended tomorrow or whatever it was just like oh man i got to do this till i was like 40 something you know that's pretty quite- cool yeah that's yeah. sick like if, if you told 15 year old me it was like okay You're gonna do this till your mid forties, and you just get to travel the world and play music. I would've been like, "Hell yeah, sign me up!" So, (laughs) I've I've already succeeded.
1: Do you still love it just as much?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's aspects of it that I don't love as much that I could (laughs) do do away with. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: but I still love it. You don't.
1: You definitely don't have the bitter vibe that some people who have been in the game for a long time have. I mean, I think it would be dishonest to say that someone loves every aspect you can't possibly love every aspect of anything in life like there's always going to be downsides but like you can you can choose to be a bitter person or you can choose to be a grateful optimistic person and it's i think it's pretty much a choice um because i know lots of people who are in identical situations who have and some of them are grateful for it optimistic others are just they see how shitty it is. And I think it's good to not have gone down that path.
0: Yeah, I agree. I feel like you got to be like positive. You got to find the good in the bad, you know, to be able to, I don't know, just enjoy life.
1: Absolutely. And I think the music industry is a challenging industry. So you definitely have to keep your head in the game in a good way to like keep your sanity, but also just be able to maintain quality or keep your life from falling apart or be able to keep on putting out music like I think it's important to take steps to keep your
0: attitude in the right place yeah plus no one really wants to be around someone who's just a dick and like and hates and hates everything I've never I've been in bands with people like that and it's like those are the first guys that get kicked out it's like get rid of this negative energy this guy's just gonna bring us down
2: you know, And not to say that people don't have bad days either. Everyone's allowed Everyone a shitty does. day.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying, I'm talking about a chronic complaining, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, everyone's had to deal with somebody like that in their life, and nobody wants to be around that.
1: I mean, we talked about it a lot, but I feel like it's so important, the hangout ability of a human, like their hangout ability points or whatever you want to call it, that shit goes a long way. I know musicians who are phenomenal like phenomenal but were very very spiky negative people who got kicked out of their bands and never got into another band but they were better than just about anybody but no one wanted that dark cloud around them
0: yeah i don't i don't want to be around that i've been in bands with people before who also are like way into like almost like competitive comparing you know, like oh, trying yeah. trying to like level yep. up to be like monuments is this big. Why are they blah? like and I'm just like monuments can be as successful as they are and we can be <laughs> successful as we are on, in our own different worlds, in our own different la- like, yep. I don't know. And it's just like even if you're a similar band, you can you can coexist and it's you don't have to like, I don't know, you don't have to compete with everybody. That being said, I also anytime I play a show with you, I want to smash your band, but it does it as it is nothing. <laughs> it is it is nothing to do with you at, like any band as people or anything. It's just I want the best out of me.
1: I completely understand that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the healthy competitive side, I think. Yeah. Yeah. If every band is trying to be the best band of the night, that's great.
0: Yeah.
2: It's all right not to like someone's music as well, but appreciating it, giving credit where credit's due. If you watch that band live and they are phenomenal and they're good people then the music kind of doesn't really matter either because you want them to succeed because they're great people and they play it really well live oh for sure yeah that competition aspect i never really understood either because it doesn't you can't force someone to like your band so if a band gets bigger than you then be grateful that heavy music's doing well rather than hating on it that it's not you or your band
1: one thing i realized after touring for a little bit was and i didn't try to do this it just developed in me i developed a respect i didn't have before for just about any band that was able to do it regardless of so i'm a bit of an elitist when it comes to like dorky music stuff but not (laughs) when it comes to like the human side of it or work ethic or things so it's weird it's like very very compartmentalized and i developed this respect for any band or people in bands that were able to just stick it out because it's so difficult like and completely independent of like what I thought of someone's guitar playing or if I like their songs like that shit is so secondary to the amount of respect I developed for any band that was able to just make it work because that in and of itself is basically a small miracle. Most bands can't make it work.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's like difficult to even like to get five people on the same page and move in the same direction
1: or however or however (laughs) big
0: your band is, you know, to have everyone working as a unit. Plus, on top of that, when you start like getting like you become like a touring band that's going to whatever you got a booking agent and a manager and there's like so many in a label, there's so many moving elements that all have to be working towards the same goal that it's like. You might have the band in one direction, the label in another direction, it's not going to work, or the management, whatever, you know? It's just, it is a miracle to get everyone focused on the same goal. Totally. You know, thinking of Hatebreed, did
1: OzFest with them one year, and uh, I had never really listened to them before that. Didn't, like, dislike them or anything, but just, they just never entered my, I guess, my music universe. But, man, I was so blown away by just their whole thing, how good they are live, like how together the whole business side of it was like uh, how everyone they had with them was like part of that family. It was just the way that they operated was so cool and so impressive that I became a fan without even caring about the music. And then I thought the music was cool once I heard them live a bunch of times, but like just seeing how well it operated was just, it was crazy. It was kind of mind blowing. I'd say, band like behemoth too like i had never really heard them before that tour and then just seeing like what a machine that shit was i was like wow this is how it's done
2: there's something crazy about uh trying to get that many humans to operate in the worst conditions Nuts.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I'm always mind blown by like Slipknot.
2: Oh, yeah, that's crazy.
0: Way too many dudes plus management and everything. I don't know. It's way too much stuff going on to get them all on the same page.
1: Yeah, just the fact that they became successful playing that kind of music, like that successful playing that kind of music and were able to keep it together with that many people.
0: And the thing even with them is like in, in the press, it always seems like it's a house of cards, too, because you're always just like, oh, you'll see an interview from one guy and he's just like, oh, this I don't know about this record or what. There's always <laughs> like conflicting things going on and then mm-hmm. they, they still pull it together and just smash everyone. I wondered if it was real. But then
1: as I got further along, I realized it was real. That tension in that camp is a, is a real thing. Meanwhile, they can still do it. I don't get
0: it yeah i got to do mayhem one year with them they had dudes that were like traveling with the crew that didn't even want to travel with the band so it was like <laughs> like I was, i'm was, i like <laughs> wow. there's no way this band stays together but so they always manage to like fix their stuff it's cool
2: the band and crew i think is around 65 just so everyone <laughs> understands <laughs> on the podcast yeah, just how many
0: people there is that's yeah insane. i mean at the, the, they're running like a full-on like corporate business at that point it's crazy
2: but that's 65 people on the road organized by the tour manager. yeah
0: yeah, no way
2: imagine having to deal with that many people on tour it would just be horrendous
0: yeah
1: (laughs) horrendous but you find the right people and it's not too bad to have kept it up for that long it couldn't have been that bad no no i'm sure that it was bad but like it couldn't have been untenable or else it wouldn't have lasted so there has to be something in that camp like someone or a bunch of them must have like really really good conflict resolution
0: skills or interpersonal (laughs) communication abilities like something once you're that big though i mean maybe they're pulling like metallica type stuff and like going like okay these two guys aren't getting along so let's bring in a therapist, you know, <laughs> I would be surprised. I mean, why not? To keep that thing functioning, you know? I mean, maybe I'm wrong.
1: I mean, there's a lot of people who rely on that thing. Like that thing basically is like a small industry, like Metallica too. Like it's basically a small industry. If they were to stop, there would be a lot of people who would be put out basically. There's probably some sense of responsibility for just keeping it going and finding out a way to keep it going.
0: That's all way above me. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm just speculating.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine trying to keep that thing going.
1: I mean, I just think about like the small amount of employees that URM has, and that's tough to deal with. Like, I can't imagine something like Slipknot or whatever. But I'm glad it exists. I'm really, really glad that there are metal bands of that size. It's good for everyone.
0: Yeah, I feel like there needs to be like those bands. Like even right now, like the Turnstile, like they're having a moment where it's just like, dude, they're they're like opening doors for everyone right now. Who knows how many people will squeeze through? But they're just like, it's it's so cool to watch like bands like them or or like Knock Loose be able to like go out and do large stuff
1: absolutely like who knows how many people will squeeze through but some will just out of curiosity i guess in either of your careers was there a band that like basically opened the door for you guys
0: walls of jericho for sure i'll credit for me personally sick of it all on earth crisis earth crisis took walls of jericho on the first time i ever like went through the entire u.s and so that was like eye-opening we're like oh i can do this this is crazy sick of it all took Walls of Jergo all over Europe. And I feel like they basically like handed us like a potential career. Cause before that, it wasn't like we weren't making a ton of money. We were just doing, we were just playing hardcore shows and loved it. And then they took us around Europe multiple times. And it was just like our band just started growing from there. I owe them everything.
2: It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. Just giving us that opportunity,
2: just getting on tour with the right band at the right time.
0: But then that band actually extending
1: themselves. Did they help you guys out at all? Like show you guys like how to do it or was it just like here's a couple tours, like good luck, kids?
0: No, there's like a handful of tours and then like I I remember being out with Earth Crisis and that was the first time I ever saw a band backline their gear. And at the time I'm coming from like vfw hall like basement shows and then i see that and i'm like who are these rock stars why what are they doing <laughs> you know like i think that's like kind of shitty but i'm like a little punk kid and then they're like no it makes it so it's faster." like i just the little things you pick up on and learn are just crazy like in it sick of it all did the same thing like they would just show us I think sick of it all is the first band that showed me like, Oh, you should have like show clothes. So you don't just ruin all of your clothes, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) stupid things like that, that you don't think about.
2: Funny thing is, is the show clothes thing is the first time I've ever done it. It was on the last tour. That we just got back from like two weeks ago
1: first time you've ever done show yeah clothes? that's impressive how 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 because
2: it feels disgusting to get the stage clothes on from the night before
1: we well, gotta just let <laughs> so them just dry wear them all day
2: Yeah, and i know let them dry but then it feels all crusty and you know it's your own juices within that
1: i need to hear the rest of the story did you just like get off stage and wear them no i would
2: <laughs> from on the last okay. tour all right I
1: changed okay but no but before that
2: before, before that i would just have a different set of clothes each day okay my suitcase would obviously okay. stink okay all right but i would just wash more regularly my clothes on tour okay,
1: okay but like just making sure you didn't commit the cardinal sin
2: of wearing right. them all the time
1: <laughs> everyone's done it but oh yeah but yeah ugh, it's terrible Dude,
0: I don't want to do that much laundry either. I don't know. It's wild. Your clothes would stink. Or you got to bring the biggest bag. Then you're overpacking.
2: Which is what I used to do. Not anymore. No more. That was...
0: Now it's just a backpack.
2: I learned... Yeah, well,
0: not quite. <laughs> that would that would
2: be wicked, but no. Yeah, just underwear, socks, and like two t-shirts. One for offstage, one for stage
1: You could do it. <laughs> Have you guys ever toured with a black metal band? Never. You want to talk about disgusting... no matter what even if they're changing those uh suits of leather and armor have to go somewhere they don't go in the laundry so at some point within i'd say a week or two like Everywhere it starts to smell like
0: spiced beef. <laughs> Dude, we did a we did a warp tour with Guar was on it.
1: Oh my god, probably same thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. Their their costumes in like August are oh ter- yeah, just in the baking in a trailer <laughs> are brutal.
2: It's amazing that they're able to keep it up after subjecting themselves. That then it probably was the same for Slipknot with their uh, jumpsuits. You know their boiler suits at one point. They were probably disgusting, oh, for on sure. the inside. You know.
1: Oh god, <laughs> those smells are so bad that literally they make my eyes start watering within like thirty feet of these stage outfits. <laughs> it's bad news.
2: I know the smell you're talking about. I actually uh, I did a tour as a tech, and it was Devil Driver and Behemoth. So Behemoth obviously smelled that smell very very quickly.
1: <laughs> it's not. It's not pleasant. But then after the show. Those dudes are uh, about as GQ as it gets. It's, like quite, it's quite the transformation. Cologne, fucking nice shirts. It's a pretty drastic transformation. The thing about stage clothes or backlining, any of that stuff, I feel like those things are things that how would you know unless you were in an experience like touring where you saw someone else do it? I'm sure a few of them someone could figure out, but like all of them. 'Cause there's so many like little details. How would you
0: know without doing it? I think the where I got lucky and maybe I maybe I behave this way because of my good experiences with bands like Sick of It All and Earth Crisis, is they never were dicks about stuff that we didn't know about.
1: That's cool.
0: They would try to teach us without like talking down to us. Even now it's like one if stick your guns takes a band out on tour and there's I see a drummer in an opening band start to take his cymbals off like while on stage in between their sets or whatever. Sometimes I'll just be like, yo, man, you should pull that off and then take it off on the side or like see someone wrapping a cable on stage where they're just like eating up the change over time, you know. And those are all like random things that you just randomly learn. But sometimes you learn them because somebody was an asshole and sometimes you learn because someone was just being nice and trying to help you out.
2: It's funny. Do you guys do this as well? When uh, when you backline your stuff, when you're headlining, do you ever apologize to the opening bands because your stuff's on stage? Because I apologize every day.
0: I used to apologize a lot, and I used to always also like push my stuff back really, really far. Now though, a lot of times we'll have like texts. Yeah. So I don't even pay attention to it now, which is shittier for the other (laughs) bands. But like we don't always have tech. So when we do have text, I end up in those conversations. But when it's just like I show up for sound check and I sound check and then I leave, I'm just like, all right, later. <laughs> but <laughs> like I don't know, which is like I, I'm not trying to be shitty to anyone else. It's just like a thing that I I don't know, I've luckily not had to deal with as much. But I want everyone to have as much room as possible so they could have the best show of their lives at any moment. Like yeah. I never want to like be like oh we got to put the drums i hate when people don't strike drums if you don't strike your drums and then you blame it on like and you have a drum tech and like i get so mad and i will want to fight your band
1: (laughs) it's a dick move to do that you shouldn't have to make another band set worse in order for your set to go better
0: yeah you shouldn't do that at all if you're playing a place that's like i don't know like a house of blues or something where the stage is super deep or wherever where there's enough room where there could be a riser and then people in front and there's still plenty of room. That's one thing. But like I played way too many shows where it's like the kick drum is right up against like the monitor and you're just, the singer's got to stand on the left side or they try to tell the drummer to like, Oh, you're setting up your drums on stage. Right. You know, like shit like that. It's the worst. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that stuff. Like
1: the thing that's, that sucks about it. I feel like, uh, there's sometimes this well we had it rough coming up so fuck you if you don't have it rough too and they will try to make it rough for people
0: (laughs) yeah i don't have any ill will towards like any actually this is a lie there's one or maybe two bands (laughs) that i hated my touring experience with and i've all i've wanted to just be able to fuck them over in any way possible, <laughs> like I've only wanted to get bigger than them, to take them out, to be assholes to them.
1: God, it must have been real bad. It's interesting because, like, I can only think of two bands that I ever hated too, and it was like the hate was so strong, it never <laughs> went away. It like never <laughs> went away.
2: It's really important, I think, as a band to always treat every band on the bill you're touring with with the same amount of respect that you would expect because you don't know if one of those bands is going to explode. And, you know, at that point, if you've already been really horrible to them, you've kind of closed all doors to ever doing anything with them.
1: But also just on a human level.
2: On a human level too, yeah, of course.
1: It's like, why why be that way? I remember having some experiences like that and then touring with bands that were really big and they were so cool. It cemented the idea for me that people choose to be dicks. Like you don't have to be. You can be both successful and cool.
0: You don't have to be a dick. I feel like it's harder to be a dick. I don't know if that's just because it's my my personality doesn't lean towards dickheadedness. No, you have to try. Yeah. I have to try so hard to be a dick that I'm like it's so easy just to be cool with everything.
1: So I think also that's part of the old school music industry is uh and I don't think that it's as acceptable now as it was, but I think people there was a lot more tyranny the further back you go in the music industry the more tyrannical people behave
0: i feel like especially in metal too metal was real bad we like we were coming from like the hardcore scene so we were like almost like anti all of that going in so immediately if someone came at us with that like old school metal mentality we were like fuck you and ready to fight people so it was it was always a fight to like keep us on a tour even something as stupid as like price matching t-shirts we were like no we're not doing that that's insane (laughs) you didn't put in on this merch we were just always fighting with metal dudes 65 dollars a shirt bro yeah back at a time when we would sell shirts for like 10 bucks so it's like (laughs) it's fucking crazy yeah but it's the same
1: in like the studio
0: and stuff like i think with managers
1: and like it's just industry-wide like for instance producers back in the day were basically dictators it was much more acceptable to be abusive to the artists you're producing whereas it really is not very accepted now it really doesn't fly for the most part but yeah the further back you go the more the more common it is i think it's just more common in the music industry to just be a fucking monster whereas i don't, just don't see it that much anymore I see it every once in a while. Not like I used to.
0: Maybe that has something to do with like, at least in like rock world, metal, whatever. It seems like things are smaller than they've been. So like, I feel yes. like egos are probably more tame. Whereas like when it's like almost everybody's an arena band and producing arena bands and all that shit with like Bon Jovi and poison and Leppard, Def- whoever, you know, everyone's egos were probably so unchecked. Yeah. That, Everyone thought they were the shit. Yeah,
2: probably also the nose beers too at the time.
1: <laughs> nose beers. <laughs>
0: that's good. Yeah, I've
1: never called it nose beers. That's that's fantastic. No, I think you're right. Like, so there's a couple things that I think have changed. Also, is uh, there's still lots of drugs and alcohol, but I think that the what's tolerated is like people will not. Work with junkies the way that they used to because there's less money involved. So I think in older days, people would put up with anything if the money was rolling in. Like people would enable the shit out of musicians and really, really terrible habits, anything to just keep the money train rolling. Since the money train is smaller now, I think people are much more careful. Again, not to say there aren't drugs and alcohol, of course there are, but people are way more careful about working with alcoholics or working with serious junkies or it's just not common like it used to be
2: yeah and those people also that have the what chris was saying about you know just dealing with people like that you can't it just it's not tolerated anymore plus people have phones now and can just put it up on the internet immediately
1: (laughs) that's a big part of it too well yeah the accountability factor now is well there is accountability so, whereas i think about it like what it must have been like in the 80s like all this money zero accountability to anything plus a bunch of enablers i mean and then people 21 years old suddenly becoming famous multimillionaires that's just a like a brew basically like one big ass potent brew
0: i feel like society as a whole though also now like doesn't want to work with someone with poor work ethic like most successful bands that you see now it's like every member of the band is like engaged whereas I feel like before you probably had like in like the big rock star world it's like Guns N' Roses has Axl Rose doing some shit and then Slash is all strung out on drugs and like someone else is trying to keep that all together whereas now it's like everyone wants to be with someone who's going to like get up and want to play their instrument versus like chase someone down. I'm not going to force someone to be in a band with me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think that's great. So when people complain about the music industry or say that it's worse than ever, like, I don't, I don't agree with that. Like, yes, there's less people with private jets.
2: (laughs) God damn it.
1: But okay. Yeah. There's maybe less mansions to go around, but as far as like, a working environment goes and ability to actually like create a living for yourself and sustain. I actually think it's way better than ever. And it's a way more like healthy place to work than ever.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's like pro sports too. It's like Michael Jordan goes to the bowls or whatever. And it's like, they're drinking beer at halftime and like you know like dudes are smoking and they're professional athletes (laughs) but now anyone who plays in the nba is inspired by jordan and now has the work ethic not everyone but you know what i mean has that work ethic because they were like oh if you want to be great this is how you behave you know and i feel like that's the same in music now too it's like if you want to be great you got to be good at your instrument you got to be able to record you got to understand social media now which I don't fucking know that shit, <laughs> but it's like, there's so many other things that you have to be good at to be great at your craft, whatever that may be.
1: I think that's great.
0: Like, I, I know that people say that, that it
1: sucks, but I think it's great. Like also though it's reality. So if what someone wants is to only play their instrument and have that provide everything for them, that's just delusional. That's like um, almost impossible to just be a musician that basically doesn't exist anymore for the most part we all know a couple people who have been able to just be a musician but that's just not part of the landscape anymore so i think there's more filters to actually sustaining a career because of the all the different things you have to do so to actually be able to pull off all those things you have to have a good work ethic you have to be engaged and you have to be motivated like you can't possibly do all those things without being motivated engaged, driven, et cetera. Like-
0: yeah, you have to be a highly driven person to want to do all those things. In my case, I feel like I've been lucky where I surround, I try to surround myself. I don't just look for friends like this, but it just has worked out in my favor, like winning the lottery, where I can surround myself with people who are able to fill in the pieces that I lack. I love playing guitar and I love recording, but then I I'm, I'm, don't want to deal with business stuff. So it's like, I'm, it's beneficial for me to have like another person in our band who is like more numbers guy and will do spreadsheets and like all the, all that kind of shit. Like, and I feel like we are, most functioning bands now, you can, you can almost find different people who have different roles that are going to fulfill the one thing to keep the band moving forward. And I think that that's really wise, by the way, working with people
1: who are, not just good at, but like into the stuff that you're not good at or not into. I'm sure you could learn the numbers stuff, but better to work with someone that's actually into that stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree too. It's like, I feel like most bands now also have a guy who's like, oh, this guy records bands. Like everybody's, Mm -hmm. every every band's got a guy, got an engineer. And it's like, this guy plays bass and he's an engineer versus like, he's bass and a background singer or whatever. You know, it's like, it's just some other thing aspect to help a band
1: yeah that's true i started noticing that um it, when i was producing uh maybe like i first started noticing that like around 2010 or 11 where literally every band started to have multiple members that did lots of things and before that there were a few bands like there were i remember kill switch members like they all had shit going on but it was actually pretty rare before 2010-ish, that there were bands where everybody had something. And then as it went along, I just remember more and more bands where this dude does the art, this dude records, this dude does the business, this dude uh, knows video, et this dude's the, the music brain. It's
0: kind of what it takes, I think. I'm sure there are exceptions out there where there's one guy that does it all, but it's like that dude would have no life, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you would have no life. You'd be like, you'd be the manager and you're recording your own shit and you're doing social media and you're designing merch and like, like, I don't know, it's just too much.
2: It kind of came into the landscape around, I want to say around the mid two thousands when budgets for bands got a lot lower after the streaming world entered, you know, like Napster and, all those things that happened in the early 2000s. And I think that because budgets were much lower for bands at that point, it was almost like a wake up call in like, we can't afford for an art guy or an art girl to, to do our artwork for our album. So, Hey, Jeff, <laughs> you're uh, you can, you can do art, right. And uh, then Jeff would do the art, you know, get better at it over the years. Cause that's what it generally is. Now the bands that you see that, that have all of that they've been doing those other things for years
0: yeah for sure
2: and i think that that was probably what inspired it was the 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 cut of budgets from labels
1: i think it's the cut of budgets but also the improvement in technology oh and that too so it's yeah. both of those things together because it's not just that budgets got smaller it's that the barrier to entry like for recording for instance yeah there were smaller budgets but also setting yourself up with the studio was cheaper than ever easier than ever and there was no real good way to do that before like 2005.
0: Yeah. Before that I had like a four track cassette recorder with a drum machine and all my demos sounded like trash. And now I'm for sure the guy that shows up like day one with a producer and I'm just punishing them now, like going like (laughs) just like going like, Oh no, it's got to go like this. (laughs) Yeah. It's got to go like this. And I want you to put in this bass drop And but like, you know, like it's just gotten to the point where, anyone can get any DAW and record, learn whatever, you know, especially with YouTube or like URM stuff. I use URM all the time. Awesome. I'm glad. Yeah. And then I go, I go punish people like Drew Falk and stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, that's the thing. Most producers are cool with it, but like producers working nowadays need to just accept that every band they work with are going to have way more of an opinion about what's going on than maybe 10 or 20 years ago. It's just the way it is. I actually think producers should just lean into that because it's more efficient. And since the budgets are smaller, you have no choice but to be more efficient. So the band comes in already knowing a lot about what it should be and have some skills. That's that's a great thing. It allows you to get more done with the lower budget.
0: Yeah. I enjoyed as soon as I like As soon as I got into Pro Tools, and I was able to like demo out like how how songs are gonna go, and then I could just give the file to a to like the producer we're going to, and not have to do scratch tracks or or anything, and just look at them unless we're gonna like manipulate something, but just go like all right, it's ready to go, go, we can start now, like it's just even that just saves so much time. Where before it was always like. Do well we got to do a scratch track and figure out the tempos and like all that stuff. Like all that's just time already saved. Money
2: that doesn't need to be spent on studio time.
0: I also think studios have stopped
1: charging for dumb shit that people didn't know any better on. Like $1,000 for a CD, for a printed CD master. Not for the mastering, but like, or for $1,000 for stems. Stuff like that. Studios used to charge for that shit. Yeah, I didn't even know. I mean, because people couldn't do it themselves, so it took time. I mean, some people gouged, but back in the day, like, yeah, if you wanted stems, like, it's going to take a couple days to like really do it, so they had to charge. But now I know, and everybody knows that it takes five minutes if you set your Daw up properly. It's literally takes as long as the song, and because all the musicians know that too, because there's Someone with a DAW, nobody can gouge for that kind of shit anymore. On the other hand, though, musicians don't have the excuse of just not knowing how it works when asking for backing tracks for live or whatever. Like, one thing that I know annoys the shit out of producers is getting hit up like once a week for like a year asking for things. Where now, since everybody has a DAW, they should know, they should know like what to ask for and ask for it all at once rather than like expecting producer to open up the session like once a week for the next year.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I know on our last Stick to Your Guns record, Drew sent us just a file that had all the stems. Like at the Mm -hmm. end of it, it was like, here's the mix, here's the stems. All right, we're pretty much done. (laughs) Yeah, He was like already prepared, which I thought was great.
1: Yeah, because if you don't, people will hit you up forever. They will for sure. That's like a huge difference. I do think though that um, there's always the fear that, or the worry that someone with a big ego who really kind of sucks is going to, you know, like get in the way. But honestly, man, I think that overall it's a really great thing that bands can do their pre-pro and that someone does know how to record it's oh, it's so much better when bands have a vision for what what things should be. Yeah, I agree. That means that someone external doesn't have to invent it for them. So, out of curiosity, when did you start recording?
0: I mean, I started recording just out of this, like making demos. I would say in like the late '90s, like with like on like just like stereos that you hit record with a microphone, you know, and put riffs on them. So that's the beginning of it, and then around like. It evolves into like drum machines and like four track recorders. And then by like early 2000s, whenever like, I forget which version of Pro Tools, but I bought an M box. I got got like an M box and a a thing of Pro Tools and a MacBook. And that was like the beginning of me recording. And it was only specifically for, I'm just gonna make demos. That's like, I just wanted to get my own ideas down. And then it's just slowly, it just slowly has kept going. Where it's turned into like I've made other bands demos to I've gotten the opportunity. I've fell into like producing other bands and just random stuff.
1: Have you found that it's helped your playing?
0: Oh, for sure. As soon as I got like a DAW and I could have like a click track, it just... like (laughs) Game changer. Yeah, it was just like, oh man, this is like... And I play to a click most of the time when I'm at home, so... I just feel completely comfortable in that way. I remember the first time it was like, all right, we're going to record to a click. And I had to hear it and play along to it. And it felt foreign. It felt awkward. So I feel like you need, I I need the click. I'll turn the drums down and the click is on like (laughs) a thousand.
1: God, the first time playing to a click was definitely weird. It's like, why does the click keep changing? (laughs) <laughs> why why, like, why is the click out time
0: click? yeah like what's what's up i'm with playing that? perfect like, yeah like
1: this thing's fucked up yeah like i feel like recording yourself is probably the best way to get better oh for sure hands down
0: especially you you, you can hear it it's like hearing it under a microscope where you're just like oh i'm sloppy as fuck you know Yep, it's that thing we were talking about earlier where like, you know, you can't tell your own age
1: looking in the mirror or whatever. Like, you don't know what you sound like when you're playing. But once you if you record yourself and listen back, you know what you sound like. You can then take steps to change it. But I feel like when you're actually playing, you have too many things going on to accurately judge. Like the instrument is vibrating against your body, like if you're not super loud, you're hearing pick noise in the room. The sound could be coming out with from speakers, and there's some sort of some sort of um delay between when you hear it and when you're playing. And there's just all kinds of factors that are going to mess with how accurately you can judge. Whereas listening back, it is what it is. That's what you sound like. So what are you going to do about it? I feel like
0: it. It helped me. It helped me too. Being able to visually see where I can go. Like, oh, I'm ahead of the beat oh, I'm behind the beat, you know? Just seeing that made me go, like, you. because then sometimes I feel like when you're off and you're close, either ahead or behind, for me personally, it's, like, hard to, like, grasp which one. I just know it sounds wrong, you know? Whereas, like, when I can visually see it, it's easier to just go, like, oh, I got to stop rushing this part. Absolutely.
2: It's also interesting that even when you're playing something say you're in the studio recording the example i'm giving is me yesterday recording i thought i played a particular part really badly and then i listened back and it was like oh that was the best take and sometimes that can happen as well the other way where you think something's bad but it's actually genuinely good kind of our bodies get in the way of actually fully hearing what's going on with each time we play totally and i found that can be both ways sometimes i'll think a take is really bad and it'll be the best one sometimes i think a take is really good and it's really sloppy
0: i struggle now with i feel like i tried to perfect being tight for so long that i'm not saying i'm like a robot and i'm perfectly tight by any means but now it's like i want things to be more loose like i feel like the i don't know it's like the older i get like i'm i'm noticing yeah. like no i don't like it when it's like mechanical i want yeah. it to sound like a human so it's just like weird. I guess I I mean you probably change your you go up and downwards, like I need to be tighter, I need to be looser or whatever, you know? Like I'm I'm at a point where I want things to be sound more loose and less computer like. Yeah. Miss- that's a good point to be at though. Like where the problem is being too tight, that's like that's good. That's good. We recorded a record in Zach Cervini was the engineer. And it was the first time I ever used an Evertune. And I was tracking like a, an octave part and he wanted me to double it. And it was like the kind of thing where he was like looping it. He was like, do it again, do it again. And he had me do it like real quick. And then it was like the left, it, he had it. So he said, I played it. I don't know if this is real or if he was just fluffing up my ego, but he was like, it's so perfectly in tune that it's like canceling itself out.
1: No, that that's real.
0: That he's like, I had to bump it. He's like, you played it too tight. And then of course I'm like, at the time I'm like, yes, I'm the tightest guy ever, you know, but it's like, <laughs> that's, I feel like that's ridiculous that that's ever a thing.
1: Yeah. Cause it monos, it monos out. If it's that tight, it literally will cancel and go mono. It's crazy. Like, I've had it happen tracking a non-Evertune once The guitar player. The first time I ever heard it was like super confusing because like we're listening to stereo guitars and suddenly it's like, it pops mono. It's like, what is going on? Yeah, it's insane. Like could not figure out what the fuck was going on. But that's what it was. But actually with Evertune, Evertune's great, but they don't tell you about what you need to watch out for because still a guitar. It's not a synth like. You know, you have to adjust for a whole different set of issues. And that's one of them. Like, especially with, like, low octaves and things like that. It's so in tune. And if you play tightly, like, shit is way more likely to mono out. So, yeah, Zach was not patting your ego. That's a very (laughs) real thing.
0: Yeah, it was wild, though. Yeah. How about Zach, though, man? That kid's a genius. He is one of my favorite people. We did one record where he was the engineer. It was Feldman produced it, and he engineered it. And still to this day i punish him (laughs) about any audio thing and he allows me to punish him to the point where it's like i've gone with him to his studio and like sat and watched him mix and like take notes and just ask him questions and stuff so i'm very fortunate for like our friendship
2: he's a genius i love his mixes
0: yeah he's like wild man I don't get it. <laughs> like I watch him do stuff. I don't either. I went and watched him. He was mixing some band's record and I was watching him mix it. And he was like peeking on like his master channel or whatever. And I was like, dude, it's hitting the red. That's it. Like that, that's, you're not supposed to do that. Right. And he goes, does it sound good? Like everything that he does to me, I'm just like, I thought I was not supposed to do this. And he's like, does it sound fine? I, and he j- always makes it sound so incredibly good. It's crazy.
1: Wild. I started noticing this through hosting Nail the Mix is that lots of stuff that they all do, all the great mixers, is stuff where I would get that result and then change it because I thought there was something wrong with it. (laughs) And they don't do that. They get that result and it might be breaking some quote unquote rule, but they like it so they keep it. And then they do that like a thousand different times and you get a great mix. But it's really hard to uh, untrain that from yourself.
0: If anything's going to peak, I immediately am like, Ooh, and like pull everything. <laughs> I'm constantly worried about things being distorted or muddy. And then when I watch someone like Zach or like Drew when he was doing stuff, I'm just like, these guys just do whatever it seems like. Obviously, they have like the technical knowledge that I'm trying to possess, but it's like, they just do whatever they want and they make it sound great and it blows my mind
1: both of those dudes are uh staggeringly talented basically
0: yeah like them as a duo like they've i've heard some stuff that like drew's done that zach's mixed and when they're together i'm always like no this is gonna be the best <laughs> thing <ever." laughs>
1: yeah world is gonna explode basically
0: yeah they're great together
1: time for one more question my question for you is since we're talking about recording and stuff since you started recording. A long time ago, you know, before you started working with producers, was it a big step for you to suddenly have someone else coaching or telling you what what to do or like getting in on your songs or?
0: Yeah, I don't feel like I'm good enough at recording, so I've always wanted like I like having someone else there, but I feel like I'm more of a uh, creative brain, I guess. So then when someone tries to tweak something that I've already spent too much time on, then I've I've resisted it. And I know sometimes I've resisted it for the better. And sometimes I've resisted it and made it worse, you know, when it could have been better if I would have let something go. So, yeah, for me, it's it's definitely like it's difficult to like have something that you've created. That's your baby that you feel like you have put so much time into and have someone come in and listen to it for like 30 seconds and just go like now nah, this part sucks, you know? Those are the parts that are difficult for me.
1: Yeah. The thing is that what I've noticed is with like the whole demo-itis idea is producers and mixers are very anti-demo-itis, but sometimes demo-itis is good. Yeah. Like sometimes it is better the original way. So sometimes you do need to uh, stand your ground, I think. And that's what makes it difficult because sometimes they are right that the shit needs to change. And so knowing when am I just being precious about this part versus no, they're wrong. I need to like I need to hold ground about this part. They just don't get it and uh my vision, not theirs. Knowing when what's appropriate, that's the tough part about it, I think.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's for sure the part where I struggle with, where it's like part of me goes, Oh, this guy's hearing this for the first time. So that means maybe I should take his opinion because everyone's going to get the opportunity to hear this for the first time and they might think the same thing. But then at the same time, my brain also goes, well, maybe this is the kind of part that you listen to five times. (laughs) After after you hear it five times, everyone's going to be singing along or whatever, you know, so it could go either way. Yeah. How do you resolve it? (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) I feel like that's a difficult, uh, That's a question for people who are much smarter than myself. (laughs) But you yourself in the moment as the person that's part is. In the moment, sometimes it's a meltdown, you know, sometimes, (laughs) sometimes it's like you're ruining my fucking song. Yeah. Sometimes it's like a defeated, like passive thing where it's like, oh, I could see the rest of the band or whoever's in the room is siding with this person. So maybe I'm wrong. I never want to be the guy in the room who thinks he's right 100% of the time. That's good. That's the answer, is you should never think that you're right 100%. Whether you're the producer or the guy that wrote the song or the guy that's hearing the song, if, like, you're going to be wrong, so... I feel like you just got to like vibe off the energy of the room and what makes everyone feel good. Mm-hmm. Great answer.
1: Agreed. All right, Chris, I think it's a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you very much for taking
0: the time to hang out with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm stoked because I have uh, I love URM and I've listened to the podcast before. So this was great. Dude, I appreciate it very much.
2: It's good to see you again.
0: Oh, it's good to see you, John.
2: Off to 10 years yeah and <laughs> we got to chat again
0: only a decade
2: only a decade Let, yeah. I'll see you in another decade
0: yeah I'll be like 50 <laughs> something
1: <laughs>
0: hopefully <laughs> thanks for
1: listening to the Rivar Podcast we'll see you next week